The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a call on healthcare trends and healthcare investing. My guest is Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases, who's going to bring us up to date on the latest pharma earnings, new product launches, and more. Hi, Josh, and welcome back to Barron's Live. Thanks for having me. A pleasure, as always. So before we get to the earnings news, let's get a quick update on the COVID situation in the U.S. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the news is, I think, pretty good. You know, cases are down. Hospitalizations are down. Um, ICU uh, people, people in the ICU is down. Deaths are down. Deaths are down 9% over the last two weeks. But I think it's always important to note that as a raw number, deaths remain quite high. I mean, we're averaging 500 people a day almost um, dying of COVID. Still, you know, I think fears of a new wave driven by this this variant, uh, XBB.1.5, um, that I think were pretty widespread just a few weeks ago, really haven't materialized yet. Um, and that's, I think it seems to me to be a pretty good thing. Let's hope it stays that way. I should also mention, you know, that the, the big news here is that the COVID national emergency and public health emergency are going to be ending in the spring. That's going to have a lot of implications that I think we'll probably be hearing a lot about over the next few months. But, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's still COVID vaccines in the stockpile. There's still Paxlovid in the stockpile. That should be free for at least, you know, at least the first half of the year. Um, but things like free at-home COVID tests paid for by your insurance, that could end in May. Um, so that, that's that's something that I think we'll begin to hear more about uh, over the next couple of months. It's all a bit of a miracle. I'm not sure we ever thought we would reach this day. Yeah. So let's talk about fourth quarter earnings, which have been pouring in from big pharma companies. Pfizer reported on Tuesday, and you got a chance to speak with their chief financial officer. Tell me what you learned. So I think the headline here was that the guidance uh, for 2023 came in below expectations. Um, you know, I, we spoke with their CFO and their CEO. The CFO, David Denton, said that analysts, I think, had missed how low COVID vaccine and antiviral demand would be this year, and also how the commercial market's not really going to start until um, until next year, or I'm sorry, until the second half of this year, as, as I just mentioned, that sort of backlog of government-bought stuff gets worked through. Um, Pfizer expects COVID vaccine sales of $13.5 billion in 2023, down from $37 billion in 2022, and Paxlovid sales to drop to $8 billion in 23 from nearly $20 billion in, in 22. But I think what's interesting and, and important to think about is that Pfizer sees those number, numbers going up again pretty soon. They people who are interested in this should, should look for these charts. They lay out these very interesting charts showing the sort of pieces making up their long-term estimates for Paxlovid and, and their vaccine. And it, it shows two, interest, two interesting things. One is that they actually expect symptomatic COVID infections to rise over the next few years. Not much, but, you know, 2% a year. Um, and they also see very significant uptake of their combination flu COVID vac- vaccine if it is approved, you know, in 24, 25, something like that. Um, uh, 
so they, they're saying they expect that um, in 2023, globally, there'll be 112 million symptomatic COVID infections, and that'll be like 119 million in 2026. And that has to do with, they expect, you know, immunity decreasing as fewer people get vaccinated. But demand, and so, you know, sort of connected to that, they see demand for Paxlovid going up very sharply. Outside, not including China, they expect um, demand to be 12 million courses in 2022. I'm sorry, I guess they sold 12 million courses in 2022. Actually, I'm not sure if that's sold or, or, or were used probably per use, I should check. But anyway, the the number going up to 21 million in 2025. So they see, you know, I think as vaccine vaccination goes down, antiviral use going up. They also see vaccine sales going up. um, And that has to do with uh, uh, the sort of dynamics of the flu vaccine being um, sort of ported onto the combo flu COVID vaccine. You know, COVID use, vaccine use, they don't see going up, but about half of Americans get a flu vaccine. Um, and they see similar numbers getting the combo flu COVID vaccine. So that's pretty interesting, not for a few years, but it gives a sense as to what what they think that this market's going to be like. They're not out of the COVID business yet. So for sure. we should note that Pfizer's stock has been down about 14% this year. It's been a very difficult year for pharma stocks as growth stocks take off again. But the stock yields almost 4%, which offers some sort of consolation. So let's move on to J&J. That's down only 7% this year. The company recently issued guidance for 2023, and you talked to the J&J CFO too. So give us an update on Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, so this was kind of a head fake. This was last week. You know, um, we we talked a bit about the J.P. Morgan conference in January that I I attended. And at that conference, the company's CEO basically seemed to say that guidance for 2023 would be soft. You know, he said, um, talked about the sort of challenging macro climate, said I, the quote was, I have to be cautious about 2023. And shares fell almost 3% that day. But last week when they announced earnings, guidance came in above the consensus estimate. Um, and what the CFO told me was that uh, while inflationary pressures are expected to persist, he says the company's been managing its costs and prioritizing investment. So, you know, um, I think they, they took, at least they took me by surprise, um, in, in issuing that, that guidance that was, that was above expectations. And I think it seems like a relatively good sign for the broader big pharma complex. You know, their earnings are first, often seen as a bellwether. They're also, at least for now, the biggest big pharma company. Um, and and so, uh, you know, I think that the, the, the broader question is, will big pharma and healthcare broadly or large cap healthcare broadly remain a defensive play in 2023 as it was in 2022? And I think that early signal seemed positive, although, you know, the stocks haven't done so great this year. Kind of depends on what the rest of the market does. Yeah, that's sort of what makes this whole conversation a little silly and abstract. But. <laughs> right, for sure. So moving on, we also heard from Merck this week, fourth quarter earnings beat estimates, but guidance there was a little soft too. What's your takeaway? Yeah, that was this morning. And I also, I spoke to their CFO too. And I think the real thing here is this is also just like Pfizer, a COVID issue, you know, People may forget, but they have a COVID antiviral that they sell. It's called the Gebrio. Um, not a big market in the U.S. for a number of reasons having to do with the FDA, the nature of the FDA authorizations. Um, but it's pretty big globally. They're expecting sales to drop from almost $6 billion this year to $1 billion next year. And that's pulling down their expectations for revenue for next year. Investors actually expected the top line drop. Um, but the, the earnings, the earnings per share guidance is lower than the estimate. Um, it was like 680 to 695 a share. 
consensus had been 733. The CFO says that that's about, there's a particular issue there involving um, an acquisition that they closed early this year that she doesn't think that the street was taking into account. She says without that, um, you know, sort of uh, in line. And, and I think her broader point is that if you take away Le Gabriel, you know, the base business is, is growing. And I think that that seems right to me. The, the big issue for Merck, obviously, as we brought up before, is that Keytruda, their big immune oncology drug, is facing patent expert, uh, will face biosimilar competition um, in just a few years, something like five years. Seems like a long time, but investors have long-term timeframes. And, um, you know, the company is working to grow through that. And, um, you know, they, they, that's that's their main focus, I think. We're going to come back to the biosimilar conversation. But first, I want to move away from pharma and talk about a company called Hologic. This is a medical testing company. The ticker is H-O-L-X. And you wrote a positive story about it last fall. It turned out to be a very good call. The stock has rallied more than 10% this year. It was up almost 2% when I looked earlier today. So tell me, what is going right at Hologic, and is it going to continue? Yeah, so, you know, um, Hologic reported earnings last night, and what the earnings showed is that the sort of the thesis the company put out for why it's, it's the thesis the company put forward as to why it's COVID era boom will translate into growth for the base business actually seems to be working. So, uh, you know, Hologic makes a number of things, most importantly, a machine called the Panther, which can run um, molecular, molecular, molecular diagnostic tests uh, very quickly in a highly automated way. So that was a big, big product during COVID and, and their, the COVID assays that run on those machines really, you know, pumped up revenues for Hologic in 2021, 2022. Um, they also sell uh, mammography machines. We can get to that in a second. And they have some other things too, but those are the two big biggies. Um, and what they had said is that, you know, they installed a lot of new Panther machines during COVID. And they've said that those machines will begin to run non-COVID tests. The, 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 you know, the, the people who were running the COVID tests will start to use them for other stuff as COVID demand decreases. And that will mean, you know, growth to the base business. And that hadn't really happened yet when we wrote about it in October because there was still so much COVID demand, the machines were just stuck running COVID tests. But the earnings announced Wednesday's evening seem to show that it is happening now. You know, revenues are still down as the COVID test um, demand drops. Uh, it was $1.1 in the quarter, down from $1.5 in the same quarter last year. And sales of the whole molecular diagnostics category were down about 40, 47%. But if you take out COVID, the COVID assay, they were up 25%. So, you know, I spoke to the CEO last night and he said, you know, people had said that our Panther machines would be mothballed when COVID demand uh, went away. But now we see that's not happening as we predicted. You know, uh, they are uh, using it for other stuff. They say that 33% of U.S. customers are running at least four tests. And what's interesting is that pre-COVID, only 20% were. And 90% of the machines are like using a non-COVID test now. Um I guess, in addition, presumably to a COVID test. Uh, so, you know, that's that's pretty good news for the company. Shares have been up um, um, and uh, and they were up after earnings uh, last night. I was struck by how many executives at pharma and healthcare companies want to talk to you. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to be the case in so many other industries. I guess they really want to get their story across to Wall Street. Yeah, look, uh, you know, um, this is something that uh, these companies seem to like to do around earnings season, get their, their names out there and make their case. You know, I, I think that um, 
it's helpful for them. Like in the, in the instance of, of the, you know, the, the Merck CFO I was just speaking about, she was able to explain to us sort of why what at first glance could look like a pretty big, you know, disappointment in terms of the lower guidance. You know, actually, if you think about some factors, it makes sense. And it's all there in the press release. But, you know, I think the companies like to be able to explain it. And for us, I think it's useful to hear what the companies are saying and try to put things in context. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed being able to talk to the Hologic guy last night because it was, you know, revisiting a story that we'd spent a lot of time on in the fall. Um, but uh, but in general, I just think it's it's useful. It's a very complicated topic. All of these all of these companies are working on complicated stuff, so that makes sense. I should point out with Hologic, this is a big company. It's got a twenty billion market cap. Yeah, so. I was actually, <laughs> even though I've written about it, I was surprised when I looked at their market cap last night. I just. Um, uh, you know, it's not one of the higher profile names in the space, although I think it's becoming more so. And they're doing a lot of um, sort of marketing around uh, breast health issues and women's health. Well, the stock went up, the market cap got bigger. So let's go back to biosimilars. It's a word we're going to be hearing a lot more about in the world of pharma. In fact, a biosimilar that competes with AbbVie's Humira is going to launch this week. So just what is a biosimilar? What does it mean for AbbVie? And what can we expect coming down the pike? Yeah, so um, people may have read about this. There's been a lot of coverage of this this week. It was a cover story in the Times over the weekend um, and uh, just about every outlet. So I'm, I'm sure people have heard a bit about this. But, you know, as everyone knows, you know, after a small molecule, a pill, a pharmaceutical pill has been on the market for a while, generic competitors come in or are allowed to come in and can sell it for much cheaper. That's a little more complicated with these drugs known as biologics. It has to do with how they're made. It has to do with how they work. Um, with biologics, you can't copy them in the same way. So there's another mechanism that was set out by Congress about 10 years ago um, that allows for what's known as a biosimilar and has to be approved by the FDA um, and then has to get through the patent thicket. Uh, thicket. And what's happening, what happened this week is that the very first biosimilar for one of the biggest drugs in history Humira is now finally on the market in the U.S. It was on the market in Europe uh, in 2018, but for patent reasons, it was not available here. It's called Amgevita. It's from Amgen. Um, and, you know, it, the, 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 the broader theory is that, you know, these biosimilars will help lower the prices of these high-priced biologics. Um, in practice... The pricing of, of Amgen's and Amgevita is sort of mind-boggling. They, they've announced two prices. You can either, or you, the pharmacy benefit manager, uh, which, which is the entity that stands between the manufacturer and your insurance company, um, can either pay a price that's 55% below Humira's list price or 5% below. And on its face, that sounds insane. Why, why, would they, why, why would they choose the more expensive price? In fact, what it has to do with is, is the rebates that these PBMs like to receive from the manufacturers. It's very complicated. And that little taste is going to sort of gives you a sense of how challenging it's going to be to actually change the prices here. What's interesting is that there will be something like eight Humira biosimilars launching this year. And it's a big test for the whole idea of the biosimilar, a test for whether the biosimilar really can lower the prices of these high priced drugs or whether and uh, Abby will remain or retain market share um, uh, or whether the prices will spiral so deeply that no one can make any money off of this and they pull out of the market. I mean, it's 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 uh, there's a lot of possibilities. No one knows what's going to happen. It's still early days uh, with the Amgen one. 
the, the, the bulk of these biosimilars won't come online until uh, mid-year. Um, but it's a major issue and it has implications that are very broad, not just for this drug, but, you know, we're, we're sort of entering into the era when a lot of tremendous selling, tremendously important biologics are going to be coming off that. And, and um, you know, whether we they have robust biosimilar competition could have tremendous implications for, uh, you know, pharmaceutical spending, healthcare spending in this country. So just explain to us, how does how does all this relate to generics? It is, so there's two different things. G- generics are the sort of copies of the chemicals. A small molecule drugs are basically chemicals and you can just kind of copy them. And there's a whole set of companies, Teva, that specialize in generics and um, they're sold for much, you know, they're very, very, very cheap. Um, and that's a well-established industry. Um, biosimilars are different kind of drugs. Um, so biologics like Humira, Keytruda, Optivo, et cetera, et cetera. They're made in uh, bioreactors for using living cells. It's a whole different thing. Um, and the companies making those, you know, Teva's making them, but also, you know, you find that companies that already make biologics and have biologic supply chains set up are um, getting into the biosimilar market. So that's Amgen, Pfizer, um, Biogen has a partnership with Samsung, um, via Vitris, uh, 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 so it's, it's, Teva does too, actually, but, but it is slightly different sets of companies and, um, different drugs. Um, and, uh, right now the pricing mechanics are very, very different. So there's an opportunity here for some companies and a potential threat for others. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, there's certainly opportunity if the biosimilar companies can make it work. Uh, you know, it's going to be a showdown for each drug between the originator and the biosimilar. And what, what I think you've seen from the biosimilars that already are online, the originator drugs still retain market share. They, they don't get wiped out. In fact, they retain pretty significant market share. And again, it, it the complexities are mind-boggling, but it has to do with the deals between the pharmacy benefit managers and the, um, so it doesn't have to do with the quality of the products or the efficacy of the products. Notionally, these drugs are roughly the same. There, there are certain wrinkles, but no, this is not about necessarily about one. It's not about one drug being better than the other. Uh, they, they do have slightly different characteristics, and that's another way in which they're different from generics. Um, I don't know how deeply we want to go into this, but there, there are slight differences um, that, uh, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's complicated. Okay. I, th- I think that that will be enough for now. So let's move on to the law. That's something we don't talk about very much in a healthcare call, but it certainly is important. In this case, I'm talking about the talc suits against Johnson & Johnson's. Plaintiffs have said that talc, which is found in powders, causes cancer. J&J has said it absolutely does not, and it has adopted a novel legal strategy to deal with these lawsuits. But not so fast. It's not clear the strategy is going to work. Tell us what's going on here and what's at stake. Yeah, and we should say, you know, t- uh, J&J um, says and maintains very strongly that talc, uh, that their products don't cause cancer. Um, so, you know, th- this this sag has been going on for a long time. You know, J&J is facing more than 40,000 lawsuits over its uh, talc products from people who say they were injured. Um, and something like a year or so ago, J&J took, undertook this very novel legal strategy, and they basically took their consumer health division, they split it up, they put everything into one entity, and then the other entity got talc liabilities and a few other assets, um, a revenue stream from royalties and some some money. Um, 
And then they took this entity that held the talc liabilities and they put it into bankruptcy. And the idea was to get the litigation over talc into the bankruptcy courts, out of the trial courts, where juries have not necessarily been so sympathetic to J&J. There was a um, Missouri case where J&J was ordered to pay $2.1 billion to 22 plaintiffs. So the stakes here are high. Um, you know, the, the plaintiffs obviously didn't want to go into bankruptcy court. Uh, and there were, right. in fact, arguments from a letter from Democratic senators and Congress people saying this is not what the bankruptcy courts are for. Um, and this week, a federal appeals court sided with the people who said this is not what a bankruptcy court is for. And they said that this entity, LTC, cannot um, uh, file, cannot cannot declare bankruptcy. You know, J&J shares fell 3.7% on Monday when the decision was announced. The company says it's going to appeal. I think the bottom line here is that J&J has been, you know, th this talc issue has been a major one for years. And it kind of moved out of the limelight as, you know, J&J got an automatic stay when they, on, on all the talc cases, essentially, effectively, when they went into bankruptcy, when they put this entity into bankruptcy. So there have been no talc headlines for quite a long time. And I think investors hadn't been thinking about it. I think investors have kind of said this this is settled. This is this is this is over. And what um this decision showed is that it does not seem to be settled. Um and now it's on the table. You know, it's reminiscent, I think, of the um Zantac litigation, uh, where a number of months ago investors all of a sudden got quite worried about it. Shares of three big pharma firms, not including J and J, fell tens of billion dollars in a single day. In fact, a uh, federal appeals court, or sorry, uh, I believe a federal judge. Um, anyway, the, the Zantac stuff is no longer a worry. That seems to have mostly been wiped away. But, you know, I think it, it, it reminded investors how, or maybe reminded everyone how frightening these, uh, these, these this litigation, this type of litigation can be for investors. Um, and uh, now the question is what's going to happen to J&J? &J? And we should also keep in mind that J&J &J is planning to spin off um, Kenview. It's a... Uh, Consumer Health Division as a separate entity sometime this year, so that muddies the picture in some in some way. So, um, right, which side of the business will be liable? If yeah, I, I don't even I have I don't really know how it's going to happen. I, I imagine it would go with Consumer Health Division, right? But um, it's just not something I think that the company wanted to have unresolved when they right. do the separation. Right. Well, it sounds like a wonderful opportunity for lawyers. And yes, and I, a gigantic headache for J and J. So before we go on to some listener questions, I wanted to quickly circle back to Eli Lilly, which we haven't talked about. The stock is down six and a half percent today. The company announced earnings. What is clobbering Lilly? So, you know, I'm actually not sure why it's down that much. <laughs> uh, the the big thing, I think, was that, you know, that there's been a lot of excitement around Majaro, their um, diabetes drug that they want to get approved in as, as an obesity drug. The launch is pretty substantial, but it did come in slightly below Wall Street expectations. Um, it seems as though that unsettled investors, um, you know, the stock's done very well over the past year, a lot of it on enthusiasm over Manjaro. Um, but I, I think this is, this is a developing interesting area, but uh, I don't have more to say about it than that. It's a lot of emotion attached to the product and the stock. Well, that's true. Yeah, for sure. All right. We had a question from Mark about expected merger and acquisition activity in healthcare. I know this was talked about at the JP Morgan healthcare conference you attended in San Francisco. Give us a quick rundown. Yeah. So, you know, 
I think the the general theme of the conference was essentially that because you know biotechs and small cap medtechs um, have seen their valuations go down so much over the last year, two years, um, you know they they really need cash and they are unlikely to go to the public markets to get it because it'll mean you know substantially diluting their existing investors. So. Um, you know, instead, they they seem really eager to make partnerships. And when I spoke to the larger companies, they said that you know companies are coming to them with lower expectations than they'd had just six months ago. So I think we can expect. And on the other hand, you know, a lot of big pharma, in particular, has signaled um, a need to do M and A um, or a deep interest in M and A. So uh, you know, um, I think we can expect. I mean, you know, predicting M and A is always like a not a great idea, but I think we can expect some um, something in, in, in pharma. Uh, biotech. Well, there's a lot of much cheaper biotech stocks to buy and after the IPO flurry of the past couple of years. Well, although we you know we should also draw a distinction between I think there there are certainly like high quality biotechs, but there's also a lot of low quality biotech, quality biotechs out there and companies that don't have data and you know don't have promising assets or are not going to get those deals and. And the companies with very promising data and very promising assets actually still can command pretty substantial valuations. So it's a strange moment. For sure. And we have a question from Amira about your projections concerning Moderna. And um, I guess we should look at the company's going to report earnings. What should we be looking for as we try to form some opinion about Moderna this year? Yeah, you know, I think Pfizer um, was pretty clear in laying out expectations for the long-term COVID vaccine market. And I think that... uh, we should, I mean, I would expect Moderna to do something similar and try to give investors like a real sense of what they're expecting um, this year and next in terms of the dynamics of that market. Um, you know, I think there's also questions about their pipeline, which they've talked about. But but I really think the big question for next week is is what they expect from um, from their COVID vaccine this year and next year. Stocks up 7% over the past year. We'll see if the good times continue. Josh, We're going to call it a day here. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, the topic is luxury real estate hotspots. And Mansion Global reporter Leslie Hendrickson will speak with three guests. Danielle Hale, Realtor.com's chief economist. Catherine Donaldson of Daniel Ravenel Sotheby's International Realty in Bluffton and Hilton Head, South Carolina. And Christina Quesada a Douglas Elliman agent in San Diego. I guess we have a clue as to where the hot markets are. So we'll leave it there. Thank you and stay well. Have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.